We're going to be taking a short break, just one week, a break from the Gospel of John to introduce something via a topical sermon. Now, uh, the idea for this sermon has been brewing for quite some time. It really came to a head recently after we preached through topically some, some parts of Genesis chapter 1. So let's do a little, little review of what we saw there in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we saw that God created human beings in His image and likeness as male and female. Now this declaration of identity was, in the ancient world, utterly unique and revolutionary. If, if a human being were to write Genesis chapter 1... It probably would have, in the ancient world, it probably would have read something like this. And God created men in his image and likeness. And women, not so much. But that's not what it says. It says he created men and women in his image. We also learned, as I'm sure you remember, that men and women do not image God in gender-neutral ways. To the contrary, the glory of woman is that she images God as a woman. Women subdue creation as women. They exercise dominion as women. They multiply and fill the earth as women. And then finally, we saw that our maleness and our femaleness informs every aspect of our being and identity. Women are women biologically, emotionally, psychologically, sociologically, family, vocation, etc., Now, if you remember that sermon well, which I'm sure you do, then you'll remember that I talked very briefly there on the gendered nature of discipleship. I said, I'm not going to say much about this now because I'm going to say a little bit more about it in the days to come. Well, here we are in the days to come. But what I said there in that sermon was that even our discipleship, which is the way that we follow Jesus, and our discipling, which is how we help other people to follow Jesus, Our discipleship and our discipling are going to be informed by and shaped by our gender. Now, in order to help you see this, let's turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you're not really super familiar with how to read the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers. So when I say Titus chapter 2... We're going to find the big two, and then the verse numbers are the little numbers. We're going to start at verse 1 and read down to verse 10. Just for context. <coughs> Paul writing to Titus says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. I see, a, it's still a little page flipping. I'll wait. I'll hang tight till we're all together. Yeah. I'm still hearing them. It's fine. Take your time. Take your time. All right. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, 
Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now let's dig into this. In, in the beginning of the book of Titus, in chapter 1, Paul tells Titus that he left Titus in Crete to put the churches into good working order. Now in Paul's mind, this ministry of putting the church into good order, it begins with men. It begins with men. Specifically, it begins with the training up of elders who are men. Now, Paul tells Titus to make sure that the church has qualified men to serve as pastors and leaders. That's step one of putting the church in order. But then in chapter two, Paul goes on to give Titus even more specific, more delineated instructions about discipleship for the church in Crete. And he addresses all different kinds of believers that may be found in Crete. So, for example, he addresses bond servants. Now, Paul says this is how you have to disciple bond servants because as a bond servant, the, your relationship to authority is going to affect the way that you follow Jesus. And then Paul also gives age-specific instructions. Did you notice that? He says, tell older women these things and tell younger women these things. Why? Because Paul is not an idiot. <laughs> he has common sense. He understands that the way that someone follows Jesus at 70 is going to be a little different than the way that they follow Jesus at 17. And then finally, we see that Paul gives gender-specific discipleship instructions. He says, Titus, listen, as you're discipling men in Crete, you need to tell them these things. And, and by the way, as you're discipling women in Crete, you need to make sure to teach them these things. Now, why am I sort of spinning all of this out for you this morning? Well, I think there's a very practical reason why, why I felt compelled to do that. You see, when I first got to Sixth Avenue a little over five and a half years ago, uh, I concentrated a lot of my discipling energy as the brand new pastor on the men of the church. And I'm glad that I did that. The church was dying. Grant was hanging on by a thread, you know. And all of this was because the men of the church just won't, weren't doing their job well. They just weren't being the men that God says that they should be. And so we know that as the men in the church go, so goes the church, right? That's also true more broadly. As the men of a society goes, so goes that society, as the man of the family goes, so goes that family. Anywhere where there is a weakness in the men, there is going to be a weakness abounding in general, no matter how strong and how vibrant the women may be. So when I got here five and a half years ago, I took my cues about where to begin from the book of Titus. I began by pouring all of my energy into training up godly elders. That was priority number one. And then priority number two, the next area of high concentration discipleship was aimed at the men in general. Why? 
Because with discipling men, you kind of get a two-for-one effect in the church, right? If you can get the men in the church to to be stronger, if you can increase their faithfulness to Christ, that will have a knock-on effect with the women in the church. A man becomes a better husband, that's going to help him be a better husband. His wife is going to be more godly, his children are going to be more godly. So it's a real two-birds-one-stone situation. But now, after... About five and a half years, and I never claimed to be quick, after about five and a half years, the elders of Sixth Avenue feel like it's time to shift gears. We feel like it's time to just be extra intentional and to pay, to, to give extra focus to the women's discipleship in the church. Let me qualify that. This is not to say that female discipleship has been an afterthought thus far in our life together as a church. It hasn't been. We've taken women's discipleship very seriously. All I'm saying is that if we had anything extra left over, we gave it to the men to strengthen the men. But now we feel like we're at a place where, by God's grace, we can say along with the book of Titus that the men are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. I'm not saying that the men are perfect. I'm not saying that the men of this church have arrived. We have not. And why did women laugh at that? That No, what I am saying is that the men of the church are no longer what I would technically call a dumpster fire, right? And the women of the church are at the place where they're kind of like, okay, do us now, right? We not only need but want extra discipleship focus and to that, the elders of the church say, amen. We love it. We're excited about it. We're here for it. We want to spend our time, talent, and treasure on the women of our church so that they might be everything that God has called them to be in Christ. Now, this does not mean that we're going to leave men behind, that we're casting men aside. No, we're still going to pour into men. What this means is that anything extra we have left over for a little while is going to go towards the women. And this sermon is your introduction to how we're going to do that. It's your introduction to what we are calling the Priscilla Project. Let it never be said that I don't have at least one marketing bone in my body, right? You hear the alliteration there? The Priscilla Project. It is uh, the, the name of the Sixth Avenue Women's Discipleship Cohort. Now, uh, before I continue, I want to exhort the men in the room this morning to not check out, okay? Because I'm going to be speaking a little more directly to the women in the church, and I know you might be thinking, oh, okay, this is where I'm going to, like, check my phone for uh, sports-related stuff. I don't know, whatever men do. Uh, Don't do that. Don't do that. Stay tuned in. You should have a vested interest for, like, 50 different reasons in the health of the women in this church. So don't don't tune out. Uh, Pay attention. Now, um... You may have some questions, ladies, uh, about the nature of the Priscilla Project, what it's going to be like, whether or not it's the right fit for you, whether or not you can do it right now at this stage in life. So I'm going to do my best to try to answer all those questions for the rest of our time together. And then if you have any more questions later, you can follow up with myself or Will uh, after the sermon or just any time in general. So the first question, why men? Why men? To expound on that question, uh, 
the Priscilla Project is going to be two men discipling women in the church on how to be godly women. So I could understand if your first question is, why are men teaching women how to be godly women? Mansplaining. Again, here we go, right? Shouldn't the women be doing that? Well, yes and no. That's a fair question. Let me, let me try to answer it. You see, part of the problem here is that so few women have actually had Titus II women in their lives to disciple them and to show them how to be strong, vibrant, godly, disciple-making women. Even if they did have a mother or an aunt or a lady in the church who, who was in some way a Titus II woman to them, what I hear from most women is that, yeah, even though I did have a, like a godly mother, she never really taught me how to make disciples, you know? Or, yeah, that lady in the church, she did, you know, have some prayer time with me, but she never taught me how to go on and then do that with another young woman. That's the sort of main stream of feedback that I get from young women. And uh, I don't think this is really that unique. I think if you were to sort of survey all of the Christian women in, let's just say, Decatur, Alabama, if you, if you could survey them all and say, did you ever have a woman intentionally teach you and train you how to disciple other women? I think most of them would probably say no. This is also not historically unique. You see, the reason why in the book of Titus, Paul has to tell Titus that he has to disciple women is because when he got to Crete, there were no Titus II women. It was a baby church. There were no 60-year-old mature Christian women who had been following the Lord faithfully for 30 years. All there were were brand new Christians. So guess what? Titus had to do it. He had to kickstart that female discipleship effort. And it kind of feels like that's what we're having to do in our church. There are a lot of young women who have never been taught how to make disciples of other women. And so the, the elders are going to come along like Titus and sort of kickstart this first generation of disciple-making women. Now, um, maybe you're in a situation here where uh, you, you feel like you're uncertain of your ability to, to be this Titus II woman. Maybe you feel doubtful. You feel anxious. When I talk about being a strong, vibrant, disciple-making, mature woman in Christ, your first thought is, that could never be me. I could never train anyone. I'm barely hanging on by a thread myself. How could I ever lead someone else in the Lord? Well, yeah, I get it. It is scary. It is scary. We're going to talk more about your qualifications in a minute and how you don't really have to be as qualified as you might think. But there's another thought that may be rattling around in your head, which is this. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I just can't do it because I never had it. I, I never saw that woman and therefore I can never be that woman. Well, sisters, let me just tell you, that's, that's just not true. That's just not true. I mean, I grew up without a father, right? But I ended up having kids. And when I had those children, I couldn't say, well, I never had a dad. Nobody ever showed me how to do this. No, I just realized I have the children and I have to raise them up. And God's grace is going to be sufficient for me as I do this. And so I want to tell you the same thing this morning. God's grace is sufficient for you. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul to you, the woman who might be fretting uh, over your past and how that might affect your future. We read it as our call to worship. Paul says, forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. 
and press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now listen, uh, I want to be clear at the outset of, uh, of the Priscilla Project that I, I'm not saying that if you're a really faithful woman in Christ that you'll do the Priscilla Project. You, you, you may not do the Priscilla Project. You may not join this women's discipleship cohort, okay? Uh, and I don't want you to feel bound by me or any pressure from the elders if you choose not to participate. Having said that, speaking a little out of the other side of my mouth, I also just want to ask, like, why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you take the steps? Your elders are saying, we love you, we believe in you, and we want to pour into you to make you the best version of your Christian self that you can possibly be. I'm just trying to figure out why you wouldn't want to do that. Now, there may be things I don't understand. That's fine. But I want to call you to really consider it. And, and I'm going to address some objections to why you think maybe you can't do it. And I'm going, to try to, I'm going to try to knock those down here in a minute, okay? Now, the second question might be this. Um, why the Priscilla Project, right? Why, why are we calling it that? Why not the Titus 2 training program or the Proverbs 31, 31 woman, pro, Proverbs 31, see, I don't know. Any, yeah. I literally just faded into oblivion right there. Did you hear that? That was crazy. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm glad you asked such an articulate question. Here's your answer. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. We're going to look at the life of Priscilla starting in verse 1. We're not going to read all the chapter. We're going to jump around a little. <clears throat> all right. Starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So here we see that as Paul has come to Corinth, he's encountered a man named Aquila, a Jew. We don't know whether he's a Christian at this point or not, but he's a tent maker. His wife is Priscilla. They seem to be a bit of a power couple. We're going to talk about that more in a bit. Now, like I said, we don't know if Priscilla and Aquila were Christians when they met Paul, but what we do know is that by the time Paul leaves Corinth, a year and a half later, he found Priscilla and Aquila to be utterly indispensable to his ministry. You can see this in verse 18. Go down to verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And I, Sorry, I jumped ahead a little bit. But when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Verse 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So it, it seems like Priscilla, along with her husband... 
But I, I do think it's significant that Luke never just says Aquila. He never just says the name of the husband. He always says Priscilla and Aquila. As he's setting sail, he's leaving Corinth, he, he feels like they need to come with him on his missionary journey. And so they do. So Priscilla and Aquila, they left Italy, then they went to Corinth, and then they went to Ephesus to go help Paul plant a church there. Now, as Paul is getting ready to leave Ephesus and go deeper into the land, he's going deeper into Assyria, it was a sad goodbye. Priscilla and Aquila had been very useful for him there in Ephesus, but he leaves them there nonetheless. Now go down to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which was in Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross, cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Man, I, I love this story. I'm so glad that it's in our Bibles. Apollos, the stud, right? He's got it all. He's from Alexandria, which means like nothing to you. But in the ancient world, it was like saying, this guy is from Harvard and Yale and Stanford combined, right? He's gotten the best education that the ancient world has to offer. And it says here that he was eloquent. It says here that he was competent in the scriptures. It says that he was fervent in spirit, which means that not only was he smart and smooth, but he was also passionate and hardworking, right? And I bet this guy probably had just like the million-dollar smile, you know, and a perfect haircut. Don't you just hate those guys, right? They just, everything about him, you know, just perfect. That's Apollos. So Apollos, he shows up in Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila are, and he starts preaching the gospel. He's getting after it with evangelism. And the text says in verse 25 that he spoke and taught the gospel accurately. Wow, praise God, right? Praise God that this really smart, talented, gifted, good-looking guy is out there preaching the gospel. But then in verse 26, Luke tells us that Priscilla and Aquila, not just Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila came up to him, pulled him aside, and taught him the gospel more accurately. And this must have been exactly what the church needed. Because by the time we get to Acts 20, Luke tells us that the church in Ephesus has elders. From Acts 18 to Acts 20, elders have been raised up in the church in Ephesus. This is a really big deal for the health of the church. You remember one of the reasons why Crete wasn't healthy, one of the reasons why Crete needed to be reinforced was because they didn't have elders. So it seems like owing in part to the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila to Apollos, the church in Ephesus was greatly strengthened. Now this is not the last that we hear of Priscilla. This is the last that we hear of her in the book of Acts, but not in the rest of the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read. Just listen carefully. In verse, uh, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 
Verse 19, Paul says this. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So Paul is writing the church at Corinth. They remember Priscilla and Aquila who might have been converted there, but who were certainly discipled there. And Paul says, guys, don't worry. Things in Ephesus are going really well. And by the way, like the church is meeting in Priscilla and Aquila's house. And then in Romans 16, as Paul is closing out his most famous letter, he writes these words. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. This is significant. It seems like Priscilla and Aquila have, by this time, made their way to the church in Rome. Maybe they've been part of the church plant there. Do you see why, after this survey, why Priscilla is so worthy of your imitation, ladies? In case you don't, let me just sort of spell it out for you. Let me just sort of draw out the lessons from these verses. First of all, Priscilla was a businesswoman, and quite successfully so. But her business as a tent maker with her husband, it didn't consume her. It was merely a tool that she used for the sake of gospel advancement, right? It was like the Proverbs 31 woman who goes to the market and sells her wares, who goes out and examines a field and assesses it to see if it's worthy of her buying it. Her business in Proverbs 31 never overtakes her family. Her business, as a matter of fact, is a means by which she serves her family better and, by the way, a means by which she serves the poor in her midst. I think we see the same thing here with Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla used her business for the sake of the gospel such that by the time Paul is writing about her work in Ephesus, the church is meeting in her home. How, did, how was she able to have a home in Ephesus so quickly? Well, her business must have been booming. Her and her husband must have been a bit of a power couple. And the, the home wasn't a, a, a shack. It must have been big enough for, to have a medium-sized church meet there. Priscilla was a very capable woman who used all of her talent, all of her time, and all of her treasure on King Jesus. Secondly, Priscilla was a missionary. She was forced to leave Italy due to Jewish persecution, right? But she chose to leave Corinth to take the gospel to Ephesus and then ostensibly later to Rome. And... As I'm reading this, I'm just trying to imagine the conversation between the Apostle Paul and and Priscilla and Aquila. He's he's probably sitting there before them, and and he's probably saying, Hey, I know that you guys, like, just got here to Corinth, and you just established your life, and you just got your business set up. And by the way, your business is booming, because Corinth was a very very business-dense part of the ancient world. I I know all of that's true, but here's the thing— There's a really great need in Asia. So I'm going to go to Asia and I want you to come with me and and risk it all and leave all this behind and come with me to go plant this church in Ephesus. And we don't know whether they right there on the spot said, yeah, or whether they prayed about it for a month or whether it was this huge battle in their hearts. But we know eventually that Priscilla, along with her husband, decided to risk it all for Jesus to go and be a missionary. 
And it seems like the Lord blessed her missionary endeavor. Thirdly, Priscilla was a theologian. She was a theologian. She knew the gospel better than the rock star preacher. And she was able to help him fill in the gaps in his theology. When I say Priscilla was a theologian, I'm not speaking in the general sense, right? And sort of this is what I tell all of our, our members, right? Uh, theologian, theos, God, ology, the study of anybody who studies God is a theologian. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, she really, really knew the word of God. She was able to use her knowledge to help correct someone so that they could more faithfully preach the gospel, and then that bore fruit for the sake of the church. She didn't merely know the difference between right and wrong, which is important, but she was wise enough to know the difference between good, better, and best. That's discernment. That's high-level discernment, and the Lord blessed it. Priscilla was not a wishy-washy, read a page out of my Jesus calling devotional everyday kind of Christian woman. No, she loved doctrine. She loved theology. She loved the scripture. She loved truth and she loved the God of truth. And then fourthly, Priscilla was a powerful complementarian, a powerful complementarian. Remember, complementarianism is a word that we use to refer to headship and submission, the way that husbands and wives in particular, but men and women in general, relate to one another. And Luke tells us that Priscilla ministered in lockstep with her husband, under the authority of her godly husband. When Apollos needed a gospel tune-up, the text says that Priscilla, along with her husband, corrected him. But notice that the text says that they pulled him aside and they corrected him in private, right? Uh, Speaking of in private, uh, you may not know this, but every week I do a preview of my sermon with different members of the church. Sometimes it's just me and Will or me and Will and Luke, or sometimes it's various members in the church. And I do that so that you, the members of the church, can help me make my sermon better, right? Because it can always be made better. This week, before I preached this sermon, I had four or five women... No, four women gather with me right here in the meeting hall and listen to the sermon and give me feedback to help me make it better. I'm a man. I'm an idiot. I don't know how to talk to women. I want to talk to women in the Sunday sermon. Please listen to what I'm going to say and help me fix this. Give me your critiques. And they did. And listen, if this sermon is bad in any way, it's because I just didn't listen to them. If it's good in any way, it's because I did try to listen to them and apply their feedback. Now, I think what happened yesterday, no, was it Friday? Friday, in that little session there that we had where they helped me fix this sermon, it was a microcosm of what happened with Priscilla and Apollos, right? The Lord used strong, powerful, theologically astute women in our church to help me be a better minister of the gospel. I'm completely off manuscript. I don't, that wasn't planned at all. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Listen, at the end of the day, here's what I wanted to say. I knew I'd get back there. At the end of the day, Priscilla did not think that she had to flee from her husband, separate herself from her husband, break free from her husband in order to be all that God was calling her to be, in order to be fruitful and useful for the sake of the gospel. She understood that she was most useful right where God placed her in partnership with and under the authority of her husband. 
And then finally, fifthly, Priscilla was a put-it-all-on-the-line put risk-taker for Jesus. In, in, uh, in, in the book of Romans, when, when Paul says she risked her neck for the sake of the gospel, he's, what he's doing there is he's given her like a gold star, you know? And listen, Paul doesn't give out missionary gold stars easily, risk-taking gold stars. He, he's not easy to impress. You remember in 2 Corinthians where he talks about everything that he's been through. He's been beaten, and he's been stoned, and he's been lashed, and he's been shipwrecked, and he's been abandoned, and we can just go on and on and on, right? That's what he went through. You're not going to easily impress Paul by saying, yeah, man, I went, to, I went to Cancun on a mission trip this summer for three days, you know? No. Whatever she did for him to say she risked her neck it must have been a really big deal. And why did she risk her neck? It wasn't so that she would be famous. It wasn't so that her name would make it into the Bible, although it did. No, she took the risk because she wanted to make the name of Jesus famous among the nations. And because of her labors, because of her works, his name is famous among the nations. Not as it should be, but we are moving in that direction. And then finally on this point, I just want to say, you know, sometimes there's a view of womanhood uh, amongst uh, certain kinds of Christians that says that, like, women don't take risks, right? Like, like radical risk-taking is strictly a, a man thing. Well, friends, that's just wrong. It's just not true. Women are actually some of the bravest, boldest, most fearless missionaries throughout all of church history, you know, and it started, from what I can tell in Scripture, with Women like Priscilla. You know, Priscilla was the Amy Carmichael before there was an Amy Carmichael. She was the Elizabeth Elliot who walked into the jungle after her husband was killed by Indians to go take the gospel to Indians. She was the Elizabeth Elliot before there was an Elizabeth Elliot. And listen, I know that when we talk about women like this and we hold them up, sometimes uh, your comparison with them, it can make you feel like, oh, I could never be that woman. Yes, you can be. You can be the same risk taker that Priscilla was because the same Holy Spirit that lives in her or that lived in her that empowered her to do that lives in you. All right, next. The third question, probably the most important one, what exactly is the Priscilla Project? We've been talking so much about it, but we haven't defined it. Well, let's get into the details. If you choose to participate in the Priscilla Project, what exactly will be required of you? Well, it's very simple, okay? Very, very simple. And by the way, I'm not saying it's simple just because I'm discipling women. When we did our elders training, when we discipled groups of men in the church, we also kept it very, very simple. Not going to overcomplicate it. You're going to read one book a month for 12 months. It'll last a year. You're going to read one book a month for 12 months, okay? Nothing crazy, You'll write one reflection paper on your one book a month for 12 months. Nothing academic, you know. You don't have to have a, a really good thesis statement to start your paper off. It's merely your reflection. I just want to know how the book is striking you. I want Will to know what did you get from this book. Yeah, one page reflection paper. Next, you will meet for a Priscilla Project discussion group once a month. So you'll read one book, you'll write one reflection paper, and then you'll meet one Sunday a month for 12 months after service. After service is over, 
The women who are doing the Priscilla Project will go downstairs. Lunch will be provided by the church. Childcare will be provided by your husbands because they love you and they want you to grow in Christ and they'll do whatever it takes to help you do this. And then we'll go down there and uh, I, my promise to you is that the meetings won't last longer than an hour unless you want them to. Uh, revival may break out, but the, they will last an hour and then you'll be dismissed. And then finally, you'll be a part of a discipleship group with one or two other women where you will just once a week be expected to have uh, coffee or to talk on the phone or maybe to send an email, just some kind of communication for the sake of prayer and accountability. Again, nothing crazy. Now, listen, I understand that no two women in our church are the same, that every woman is on her own journey. I understand that. I understand that not every woman will be able to or perhaps even want to participate in the Priscilla Project. But in closing, I do have to tell you that I'm a little nervous that there may be some women, just like with the men, but now I'm addressing the women, there may be some women in our church who don't participate for reasons that are really just not that good. You, you may have like a couple of objections to your participation that I want to kind of get out ahead of and try to resolve those in your heart and mind so that you feel freed up, encouraged, and empowered to participate in this, okay? So this will be where we end. The potential barrier to your participation, number one, time. You may come up to me and say, Sean, I love the idea of doing the Priscilla Project, but I just don't have time. To which I will reply, is that true? Are you, you sure you don't have time? I mean, listen, I don't know your schedule, and I don't know your life. I don't know your struggles. But I do know that I've really never met a person, and I know some very busy people. I've never met a person who is too busy for discipleship, you know, too busy to read one book, write one little paper and come to one discussion group. I've never met a person so busy. And if you're like, Sean, you don't know me, I would say, yeah, but maybe you don't understand what your priorities should be, right? Like if, if you're so busy that you can't make time to grow in Christ, then maybe you're just too busy in general. Maybe you need to take a look at your schedule and ask yourself, am I prioritizing the things that matter most? Maybe you need to sit down with a brother or sister in Christ or an elder in the church and say, hey, I want to participate. Help me find an area where I can carve out time in my life. Help me to be more strategic. And we'd say, great, let's do it. Or you could just like delete Facebook and Instagram off your phone and just magically oodles and oodles of time will just become available. It's going to be crazy. You're going to be reading 10 books a month. Yeah. Barrier number two, husbands. Husbands, husbands, husbands. Husbands, um, I'm going to speak frankly and directly with you as men, as men ought to be able to speak to one another. I really hope I don't ever hear about any man in this church trying to hold back his wife from growing in Christ. I really don't. I mean, I... Listen, I, I, I can be pretty cool, calm, and collected, but I might lose it on you. I'm serious. If, I, if, if your wife comes to me and says, yeah, I would be there, but, you know, he won't watch the kids. He won't help out with the dishes, or he told me he doesn't want me to go. 
you might want to meet with Will or Grant or Shane about that conversation because I just don't know how I'll respond. It's just like the worst kind of dereliction of duty that I could possibly imagine for a husband. It's the worst kind of spiritual abuse for you to say, I don't want you to grow in Christ and I'm going to actively stop that. So brothers, I don't think that's true of any man in this church and I hope it's not, but that's kind of a low threshold, right? Not actively holding your wife back. Let's go higher, let's go way above the bar and say, men, do everything you possibly can to help her. If she comes to you like two days before and she's like, ah, shoot, I didn't do my reading. I got to read this book. I got to write my reflection paper. Your response should be, great, I'll order pizza. I'll take the kids for the evening. Babe, you go read that. You go do that. You know, I'm here to help, right? What do you think, guys? Is that possible? Is it doable? It's like the lowest possible level of Christian maturity. So I hope that the answer is yes. Potential barrier number three, motivation. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, all right, you know, the Priscilla Project. I, I like the idea of this, but you're a, little, you're a little scared of how it's going to affect you, what it's going to require of you. Maybe not even the workload, but just what it's going to require of you emotionally and spiritually. You're nervous about stepping into the light, accountability, having to expose yourself, let other women in the church see you for exactly who you are opening up, being vulnerable. It's all very scary. And I get that. I wrestle with that all the time. As a pastor, I try to lead from the front with those things, but it's still hard. It's still very hard. But brothers and sisters, I just haven't found any other way. You know what I'm saying? There's no life hack for spiritual growth. I learned recently that, uh, that there are like a whole bunch of five-star chefs. They uh, microwave their baked potatoes. I learned it from the internet. They wrap them in saran wrap, throw them in the microwave for 10 minutes. They say, you'll never know. Nobody ever knows, right? Bake them for an hour, microwave them for 10 minutes. Nobody ever knows. Well, I don't have like a trick like that for you for how to grow in Christ. There's only one way, and it's the old way. It's the means of ordinary grace. It's reading scripture. It's prayer. It's accountability. It's fellowship, it's discipleship, and it's slow, and it's a grind, and sometimes it's scary, and sometimes it's painful, and sometimes you feel exposed and vulnerable, and sometimes it hurts when the Lord comes along and prunes you. You remember that from the other week? And if I knew of another way, I would tell you about it, but I don't. So let me just encourage you to embrace the normal patterns and rhythms of Christian life. Potential barrier number four, qualifications. Some of the women in our church may be thinking, I'm just not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I look around at these other women and I just think, oh, I can never be like them, right? And that's, that's the problem with the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Every man is like, just look at the Proverbs 31 woman and be like her. Come on, rise up to the occasion. All the women just sort of wilt under that. Men don't understand that, right? Oh, I could never be like that, so I'm just not going to try at all. And this is the point where I'm supposed to say, you know, you are enough. You can do this. Come on, gang. Let's go. But I'm not going to do that. Because the truth is, you're not enough. I'm not enough. 
Nobody in this room is enough. That's kind of the whole point of the gospel, right? If you were enough, Christ would not have had to send his son to die on the cross to pay the price for your sins. If you were enough, you could just sort of pick yourself up by your bootstraps, modify your behavior, calibrate your heart, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and be holy as he is holy. But we're not able to do that. So God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross after he lived a perfectly righteous life, a life that we could never live. And then he credits that perfect righteous life to us through faith. That's our only hope. Even after we've been saved and the Holy Spirit lives in us and empowers us, that Holy Spirit living in us, His ministry to us, is the only thing that sustains us. It's the only thing that keeps us going. In yourself, you have like zero capacity to be what God is calling you to be. But thanks be to God, you don't have to depend on yourself. There's something living in you that's greater than your sin. His name is God, the third person, the Holy Spirit. Long name, but it's a good one. So, instead of telling you that you are all these things and that you can do it, rah, 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 I just want to let Scripture speak to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able, not you, you're not able, Courtney, Delisa, Mazzy, favoring the right side of the room here, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Samantha, Morgan, Emily. So that having all sufficiency, not a little bit of sufficiency, not partial sufficiency, His grace abounding in you causes you to have all sufficiency in all things at all times. That's a loaded sentence. You see the way he weighted that? All sufficiency in all things at all times so that you may barely get by? No. So that you can meet the bare minimum requirements? No. So that you may abound in every good work. You can do this, but not because of you. You can do this because of the God who lives in you and his grace. You are not sufficient, but he will be your sufficiency. So if you want to be a part of the Priscilla Project, you can sign up for it this week. We're going to send out a sign-up sheet. This is my way of letting Luke know that we are going to send out a sign-up sheet. Uh, We are going to begin the first week of January. Uh, Please do not treat this sign-up like the RSVP for, you know, like the church Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, where like two people respond and then like 80 people show up. Right? You will not be accepted. <laughs> if, as soon as you get this in your email, sign up. If you don't get the email, reach out to Luke, uh, to Luke or to Will or to myself, and let's get you signed up. We're going to start the first week of January, and until then, uh, consider these words prayerfully. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, men and women both, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will help us to believe that every good thing you've called us to is something that you've prepared for us. Help us to trust in your power and help us to live for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.